Every season has a soundtrack. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Growing up Muslim in America, Christmas provoked lots of interesting conversations, especially when I would join neighbors in Kalamazoo, Michigan, in the tradition of caroling. My favorite song, The Little Drummer Boy. Singing the songs in chorus or caroling on the streets was one of my favorite activities during this time of year. When I was growing up, my mom, though, was a little hesitant. She would ask me not to sing the lyrics, but suggest that I just, well, hum along, especially to the parts that talked about or described Jesus as divine. I sort of ignored that because I personally don't believe singing a song is akin to declaring one's faith. But to my mom, the line is not so clear. In her mind, these songs are religious, which got me wondering, are they really? And like every question out there, I found a podcast that offers some answers. If a song doesn't explicitly reference the manger or the nativity scene, but does carry with it uh, certain values of the tradition of the season and has been inspired by the practice of Christianity, uh, then I think it is a Christmas song. That's Maggie Van Dorn. She's the host of Hark, a five-episode podcast produced by America Media. She was the founder of Interfaith Matters podcast for the Interfaith Center of New York. In recent years, she joined the team of America Media, a Jesuit media group and publishers of America Magazine, along with a number of podcasts. Back in 2019, Van Dorn produced a 15-part podcast series, Deliver Us, that explored the Roman Catholic clerical sex abuse crisis. Van Dorn describes herself as a committed Catholic, dedicated to healing the church from the inside. She loves the art of storytelling. At the beginning of Advent, her latest project, Hark, hit the pod feed. To learn more, I caught up with Maggie from her home outside Asheville, North Carolina, from where she lives and works. Why did you decide to do this particular podcast? Well, actually, maybe on a very personal level, after studying the abuse crisis for so long, I needed something cheerful. Mm. (laughs) I also am a big consumer of podcasts. And so I listen to Song Exploder, which takes apart popular songs uh, with usually the artist or the producer. And I'm always fascinated by how art is made. And I started thinking about how our common or popular religious hymns and songs that, you know, you're belting in church are made. And and then I thought, you know, carols, Christmas carols are ubiquitous. Like whether you are a believer or not, whether you identify as secular or religious, you're probably singing Christmas carols this time of year. And And even if you grew up singing them, you might not always know the theology behind them. Was my mom legit in her worry <laughs> that if I'm singing this, that I'm like, I'm declaring my faith? Oh. What, what do you think? What's your take yeah. on that? So I would say like up until the late 19th century, most songs were explicitly religious about the birth of Christ and confessional and, and sort of declaring Christ the Lord. And it really was only in the late 1800s that we started getting like the jingle bells and, you know, songs about the cultural festivities of Christmas. So 
there is a long lineage of that. And we just released an episode on Adeste Fideles or otherwise known as Okamali Faithful, which has the Nicene Creed built into the lyrics of mm. the song. So a lot of people actually grew up learning their theology through hymns and carols. So yeah, I think the, the early ones definitely were. The first Christian carol that we have on record is from 129 AD. The Bishop of Rome uh, urged people to sing Angel's Hymn. Uh, we don't really know what that sounds like. There are no recordings then and probably no sheet music. I listened to the first episode of the podcast, and I was mm -hmm. struck by some of the things I learned, like there was a backlash against singing and festive songs. Like, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't know that on my street when the carolers come, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> barreling come down with hot chocolate and all kinds of spicy things in their cups. Tell me a little bit about the history of that evolution that you learned mm -hmm. in doing the podcast. Yeah, I like to say this was the first war on Christmas in the 17th century in England during the Civil War when the Puritans were in power and Oliver Cromwell was head of parliament. Uh, they actually banned Christmas carols because from the Puritans' perspective, it was frivolous and popish and they didn't see anything in scripture that directly called us to celebrate the birth of Jesus in this way and... So, it, yeah, it was it was officially banned in England. Um, people, of course, continued to sing underground, some boisterously in the streets, you know, defiantly. And when the English monarchy was restored, Caroling came back. <laughs> They're obviously in Christianity and in a lot of traditions, lots of competing points of view on practices where some declare something to be unlawful. And mm -hmm. others see it as core, as central to some of their celebrations. Being Muslim, I'm thinking about like mm. Sufi devotionals and then mm. some, you know, uh, groups that have a very different interpretation in which they ban music. So much of this seems to me to come back to culture that we as flesh and blood humans have a culture that we that our theology and religious beliefs has to take root in. And, you know, so much of art is just reimagining that theology in a creative form. And so, yeah, you, you do get things that are non-scriptural, non-canonical, that might not be the sort of purest expression or fully accurate depiction of our religious beliefs. Um, but that's the difference between dogma and art. I obviously take a very liberal approach to this and sort of love all of the festivities and culture, or most all of them surrounding Christmas and, and other religious celebrations, because I think it's the way that um, spirituality gets expressed, that theology gets enculturated, and this is what we as humans do. When you talk about that role that culture plays, it reminds me of a piece in the intro where you remind listeners of the timing of Christmas and it overlapping with the winter solstice and the traditions in many present day European countries of what celebration looked like during the winter solstice pre-Christianity, pre-Christian mm -hmm. belief systems. Who did you talk to to get this context? Who gave you some insights? historians, like music historians, musicologists, conductors. It's been really fun to dive into music theory, of which I know hardly anything about. Um, but yeah, they're explaining like basic concepts that make us a, a song sing. Um, 
and theologians and scripture scholars to help us interpret the lyrics or texts of these songs. Thousands of years ago, carols were sung in Europe, um, but they weren't Christian Christmas carols. Uh, They were often pagan songs. Mm -hmm. So a lot of Christianity uh, picks up from the pagan world and has adopted ancient pagan rituals, celebrations, thinking of of the winter solstice here, um, that Christmas overlapped with that uh, seasonal celebration. And so, um, you know, just all of the lighting of candles, of um, singing songs, of bringing warmth and light in a period of profound darkness, really. Yeah, so a lot of the traditions that Christianity adopted and sort of tweaked and made its own uh, do have pagan origins. I don't find that threatening at all. I, I was going to ask you, like, <laughs> when you shared that, did, did listeners have a reaction to it? Was there any sort of pushback? You know, not yet. But I think when you have a tradition that is thousands of years old, um, you're you're bound to acquire some really profound and meaningful uh, cultural connections, let's say. I've never been personally threatened by it, but I am really grateful to say that the church that I grew up in, um, there was an awareness of this larger cultural patrimony. What did you learn about the rhythms and sounds and the tonality of Christmas carols? Talk to me about those low, somber sounds that we hear in some carols and some songs. And when you hear them, we mm. it, it, they sound sad. So the minor chord, which I did know about major and minor chords. Major chords are like sort of warm, homish, generally we think happier and then the minor key or chord song sound sad or strained or eerie and you'll hear that in like silent night it came upon a midnight clear we three kings O come O come emmanuel is is one that we spotlight in the series and you know what was most interesting to me was i always thought okay this is a sad or eerie song and what i learned is that that is a much more modern interpretation. The folks who were originally composing or singing this wouldn't have brought that association to the music. There might have been a sense of strain or longing, which is really appropriate for the season of Advent leading up to Christmas, that it's one of anticipation and you know, sort of preparing the way. Actually, it sounds almost like Sunday school. It's like, let's get serious here, folks. And that the songs were intended to kind of bring about this attentiveness to the theology or to like the significance of what folks were preparing for. Well, and if you listen to the scripture readings in mass at this time, they're about Jesus's coming, but they're also about the second coming. And some of them tend a little apocalyptic. And um, it's a question of like, are you ready? Are you ready for the coming of our Lord or the, you know, the coming of Jesus? And so there is an invitation to stay awake, to be ready and prepared and to embrace this season as a time for that coupled, of course, with the joy of Christmas. But yeah, it's I think what what is really, really, really beautiful about Christmas music is it's not just jingle bells and merriment and happy, happy, happy all the time. There's a recognition that our world is broken and sinful. 
and in a state of longing, that we long for things to be made right. So when we sing like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, it's just like a sustained longing or, or desire that our world be healed or that we could be a part of that. And so that is also what Christmas is about. And, you know, I think Christmas carols can hold all of that. In the series, the role that Black Christian caroling the influence it had, and specifically tapping into liberation theology. When you describe that brokenness, what did you learn when you dived into that? Mm. So at first I was really concerned about, you know, doing this series because so many of the most popular carols that we sing have a European lineage. And so I, I wanted to explore like the if there are, there are black Christmas carols or spirituals or gospel music that um, has come has come through, what I found is that the black Christian church brings a different interpretive lens to these carols and stories, and it is from the perspective of the marginalized, the oppressed, the unhoused, um, that there is a, an attention to that. And of course, that's in the nativity story all along. But you know, liberation theology looks from the vantage point of of the people, you know, and and the people, including those in marginalized communities. And so, those communities are going to recognize parts of themselves and their story in the story of Jesus um, that others might not. And I, yeah, so I think like bringing one's whole history and culture to the reading or singing of a carol transforms it. Is there a particular carol that comes to mind when you think about that? So Dr. Kim Harris is a theologian who came on for Adeste Fidele's Come All Ye Faithful, and she totally flipped the way that I think about that song. Um, I, I have to admit I was a little turned off by like the directive to come worship, like, come worship, adore Christ. I uh, was hearing it in that tone. And she said, you know, the, the black church might hear this more as, come let us adore him. For people who were enslaved, whose children had been sold away from them, whose family member may have run away and you don't know where they are or how they are, whose spouse may have been sold from them. The only thing you could hope is that the angels who are watching over all of us would somehow know where they were and how they were. So when I think of sing choirs of angels, well, those same angels who are watching over are also invited into this community that is singing and praising and worshiping God. Who was singing this with us last year that's not singing it with us this year? And to remember that, so there can be that sting in the heart. And yet as people of faith, we say they are singing with us still. We kind of fleshed out this whole theology of worship that I wasn't expecting, um, but you know, that helped me understand this song differently. Mm. I was reading that it was St. Francis of Assisi in 1223 who started nativity plays in Italy. I was just struck by that. And I was thinking mm. about how in a time where there's low literacy and oral tradition yes. allowed us to kind of 
do that storytelling and mm-hmm. share traditions that singing was embedded in the art forms of whether you were around a fire or watching a play unfold on a stage in which you didn't have the technology mm. to whip out your phone and record it and share it. Um, all right. the things that we do today that don't necessitate us to tune in 100% and listen. Right. Uh, such a different time we're living in now. You know, as a kind of like a, a defender of the arts and even the audio arts, um, to encounter a message through uh, artistic performance or any, any work of art, I think has the ability to transform us more than words sometimes. I think that it's um, sometimes more effective than traditional wordy preaching um, to have, you know, the arts kind of at the center. And when is the next one coming out on Sunday? So the really magical thing about Hark is that each week we have left listeners in suspense, wondering what the next episode is going to be. And that's deliberate. You know, we we want to uh, conjure up the spirit of anticipation in Advent. And so I can't tell you. I can't tell you what the final episode is going to be. You have to tune in. (laughs) (laughs) You know what really surprised me is how these carols evolved. I always thought of them as like a Christmas present that just comes all bundled together. You know, someone wrote the the music, the score, and the lyrics, and that is not true at all. They usually evolved over centuries. So something will start as an 8th century monastic chant and then get paired with a 15th century French tune. Um, and then, you know, that gives us O Come, O Come, Emmanuel in, in the 19th century. And so these songs have taken literally centuries to marinate and to bake and to get really, really good. Um, but that also means that the person or communities who originally wrote the lyrics or the text of the song um, would never have heard it as a Christmas banger, right? Or, or, or as a you know immensely popular song. And you know, in the case of "Hark the Herald Angels Sing," Mendelssohn wrote the tune and it was originally designed for the celebration the 400th anniversary of the Gutenberg printing press and it was this very patriotic german song you know almost like a uh, a chorale and so he had developed the the music for the printing press kind of in praise of the printing press and uh <laughs> and, and this enlightenment period you know in the last two years we've had a growing conversation in this country of racial reckoning about the roots and deconstructing systemic racism in the places we least likely see it did you encounter any mm. of that as you were digging into some of these carols did you learn any bits about history that you may not have wanted to discover yeah certainly charles wesley uh who wrote the text for Hark the Herald Angels Sing, uh, supported slavery, right? And that is horribly uncomfortable, right? And uh, I, I think that's, you know, part of this reckoning is looking at the gifts that individuals have brought to culture. You know, it it, it is a lovely song, but also seeing them in full historical context. And that's true for looking back a few centuries. That's true for our times today, that we do not have perfect historical figures. We, we, we're not perfect people. If nothing else, it should really just open up conversation. I don't, 
I don't feel like saying never sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing again. Um, in many ways, because it was, it doesn't just belong to him. It belongs to uh, many people who actually contributed and, and wrote that song. Um, it also belongs to the people who want to sing it or who have found it meaningful. So it's tricky, but I appreciate that that question and just... You know, anytime I think we're looking back in history, we're going to have to wrestle with it. Thank you, Maggie, for spending some time with me to talk about Christmas carols, songs, and boy, I'm now going to start Googling Little Drummer Boy and get the backstory. <laughs> yeah, please get the, get the story. Get back to yeah. me. Let me yeah. know. Yeah, I will. <laughs> Maggie Van Dorn is a producer with America Media. Her latest project, Hark, can be found wherever you stream your podcasts. Or you can find it at americamagazine.org. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any part, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. This week's producer is Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, and the original production team that produced the archival episodes we heard at the top of the show, led by producer... Laura Correll. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week. <laughs>